Lord God, thank you for my brother standing beside me here, the one who is coming to bring your word this morning. Uh, Father, we just uh, pray that it might be mighty, uh, that you might open our ears again, Father, to hear what we need to hear from you so that we might grow closer to you and become more like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, mate. Thanks, John. Morning. How are we this morning? We're good? We're good. Okay, good. Well, this is what's going to happen this morning. Uh, We are going to move pretty fast through uh, what um, I've been meditating on, but uh, more importantly, what God's Word has to say to us. Um, In February, we we as a church began our series in the Gospel of John. Uh, And we've come to uh, the end of the Gospel of John in the sense of part one, and we'll continue it next year. And we've been exploring and seeing who this Jesus is. And last week we, we, we unpacked and we wanted us to consider these things. We wanted us to consider that Jesus is the divine son, that we wanted to consider and, and take into account that Jesus is the life giver. And we have this beautiful, powerful statement by Jesus in John eleven twenty five to 27. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And Jesus asked the question, do you believe this? And that's the same question we asked of us as a church community, as a people. We asked this question, do you believe this? Because Jesus himself is offering eternal life. And this eternal life is not something that you gain one day in the future, but it's actually something that is now, it's present now, that's what you have if you're a follower of Jesus. And that we were reminded that whether if you're going through trial or suffering, whatever it might be, even facing death, it's death itself, we actually have hope. We're a people of hope. That Jesus himself is the life. And that statement is his very nature, reminding us that he is the divine son, he is the giver of life. And he has all authority. Now, I don't know if you remember the story, the famous story of Lazarus. He's been physically raised from the dead, literally. This is not a made-up story. It actually happened. And it was another significant sign to show who Jesus is based on his statement of him being the resurrection and life. And we come up to the verses that we're going to be spending our time on this morning. So if you have a Bible, uh, if you could turn with me to John chapter 11 again. And we're going to pick it up in verse 45. Uh, I'm just going to read the passage for us just to kind of give you a bit of a grid for where we're going to be spending our time in. Here is God's word. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, that's Jesus, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." And one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered aboard. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, 
but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many were up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Lord, you've heard our prayers. We thank you that you're in our midst. Capture our hearts again to consider the idea of substitution. In your name, amen. Amen. Uh, Friends, this morning, I guess the big idea or the big thing that we're going to camp on for all of this morning is this idea that Jesus is our substitute. That Jesus is our substitute. And now my guess is it's not a term that we constantly think about often. Uh, Maybe you've read it in some sort of theological book and so on. Uh, And maybe for some of us it might seem a bit quite foreign. The closest thing that we might have a substitute is when you're on a basketball team and you're hoping they'll substitute you onto the court. Never experienced that. But that's what I hear. This idea of substitution is a significant truth in the Bible. It's a truth that is there for a reason, but it's also a truth that's significant because if you remove this truth of substitution in particular from the Christian faith, I don't think there's actually a Christian faith. It's significant. It's true. It's a reminder of God proclaiming that He is the provider. He's the provider of salvation. As we've been exploring the Gospel of John, what happens often in Jesus' life is as he's revealing more of who he is, so does the opposition now start to rise against him. In particular, the religious leaders of the time. As he reveals more of who he is, more, more and more they're getting so fired up and frustrated with him to the point that they want to kill him. And you will find earlier in John, right, they were picking up the stones to stone him because he made himself equal to God, that he was proclaiming that he is God. But at that time, Jesus' time had not come yet. And now, Lazarus, this guy who was physically dead for four days, he's been raised up. Maybe they've heard about the story, but it seems that the news has got back to them. And if you see in verse 45, did you hear what they said? These guys were a bit worried now because this has done something to reveal who Jesus is. In verse 45 it says, Their worry is this, Many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary had seen what he did, believed in him. So there's a group of people who have heard and seen and know and now they believe in him. Some men had told the Pharisees, they asked the question, what are we to do? And what are they saying? If we let him go on, in verse 48, like this, everyone will believe in him. They're being threatened. And some have gone and told this to the religious leaders. Now, just to set a bit of a grid, you've got some sort of um, Bible terms that are thrown around, like Pharisees and Sanhedrin and high priests and so on that's going on. Just to give you a quick summary. The Pharisees were probably one of the most influential leaders, religious leaders of the time. And not only that, they were actually quite political by the time of Jesus. Uh, most of the uh, historians say there was more Pharisees than Sadducees, which is another group, and there were about 6,000 of them. 
This group of people were so um, bent on making sure that certain doctrines and patterns of behavior were really adhered to. And this is why often you would see in Jesus, right? What would happen? He would uh, heal someone on the Sabbath. Who's there? Pharisee. What are you doing? You're not allowed to heal on the Sabbath. And so these people were zealous about Old Testament law. But in time, they would add more things to their religion to heap it onto the people. Uh, they were part of a group called the, the Council or the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Sanhedrin group was the leg- legislative council of the time. And here, that's what's going on. as this group of people gathered together. And in this person, there's a guy called Caiaphas, who is also a high priest. He's the, sort of the one in charge. He's the grand poobah, if you want to use our term. In this moment, the news has got out. And they call for a meeting. Now, I don't know if you saw in the verses that we just read, why are they gathering around, right? They know that people are believing in Jesus and they're worried. They're not really at this moment questioning some sort of dodgy theology that Jesus is teaching. They're not even testing if Lazarus is physically rose. I mean, he's there. They can't hide it. They're worried that everyone will believe in Jesus. And not only that, they make this comment that the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So for the religious leaders of the time, Jesus' popularity, what Jesus is doing, what he's revealing of who he is, is not a good thing for them politically and also for their power and influence amongst the people. It's been threatened right in front of their eyes. They don't know what to do and they have this special meeting. Now, um, we've got to keep in mind, this is nothing new as we've been exploring the Gospel of John. It's been revealing more and more of who Jesus is. Remember how the idea of the signs, remember these verses that we've been saying over and over again, and maybe you can say that with me from John 20 verses 30 to 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So this is all being done to reveal who Jesus is. But yet, for the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, their hearts are hardened. And they are not seeing the Messiah for who he is. There's a sense of stubbornness that's going on. But you know what? This is nothing new. Uh, Jesus actually encounters this. Jesus actually uh, confronts them on this. I don't know if you remember in John 9, verses 39 to 41, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. At the heart of it, for the religious leaders of the time, these Pharisees, it's their sin. This is why they're guilty. It's actually so consuming them and blinds them. We're seeing that played out now. These are people who are very, very religious people. They know their religion well. They know their Bibles really well. This is before searching on Google a particular verse on suffering. 
They memorize these things. They know it really well. It's like saying that they go to church every Sunday. They're involved in many church things. They might even be able to have the ability to memorize Scripture. But at the very heart, their heart is far away. Their heart is hardened and they're ignorant through the truth of who Jesus is. It's using like they even know the lingo, the Christian lingo that they have grown up with. They're refusing to see the resurrection power that has been displayed in Lazarus. They know a lot of knowledge, but their hearts are far away. And in their hearts, they are losing control. And they want to fight for it. Because they're realizing the focus is now moving towards Jesus. These teachers are worried. They're worried everyone is believing in this Jesus. These teachers are worried because the Romans, who are now they're the answer to because they're an occupied nation, there's political stuff going on, they're worried their political power will go. This idea of the Romans coming and taking away our place, there's a couple of ways you can read that, whether if that's the sanctuary or the very place that is the temple, where they are all sort of involved and that's where their main power is. Either way, what they're really saying is their power There is the danger of their power being taken away. Friends, I know it's easy for us, particularly on this side of the whole New Testament, if you've grown up in church, to look at the Pharisees and just go, those guys, how come they never got it? But friends, what we have in front of us is also a reminder, this is what happens when we don't see Jesus for who he is, fully. When you and I create religion that's ultimately based on us. The religion that's based what suits us best. Some commentators call this empty religion. One of the commentators I read, empty religion, this is how they define it. Empty religion is when a person comes to church every Sunday, puts money in the offering bags, says the right things, and maybe even very moral in their standards. But the heart... It's a me-centered religion. It's ultimately about themselves. It's about how many blessings they can receive from God. And the focus is no longer Jesus. The focus is themselves. Well, what Jesus calls for is if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, firstly, the focus becomes him. Then the focus becomes others. And then finally, yourself. And here we have the Pharisees, the religious leaders, so caught up in themselves. Friends, this is why the Christian faith does have rules, does have commands that we are expected to follow. But it's much more than that. It's actually based on a relationship with someone, Jesus Christ. And it is that relationship with Jesus that stirs us to live in a particular way. That stirs us to say no to things because of our relationship with him because it's about him he's the center of it all you know what amazes me in this passage in some sense is not necessarily the pharisees response it's not a real surprise we've been seeing that in the gospel of john what astounds me is god knows god is not out of control here he knows exactly what's going on 
He sees and knows the stubbornness of the heart of all mankind. And friends, that's our problem. You know what sin is? Sin is, sin is not just some sort of swear word that you say. The sin is a posture. It's a, it's, a, it's a thing that we're born with in the very heart where we're saying to God, I am my own boss. Don't tell me to li- how to live. I make my own religion based on what I want, not what you want. Friends, this is why we're in desperate need of a substitute. This is why this idea of a substitute is here in Scripture. We need someone who is so much better than us. As we see in our passage, the religious leaders have organized a special AGM and there's only one item on this special AGM meeting. They're concerned about Jesus. And for them, they're trying to work out what the solution will be. And this guy, Caiaphas, speaks up. And he says, you know nothing at all Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish? He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, pick this, see how God is involved. This year he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Like I was saying, Caiaphas is a significant guy. He's the kind of the grand poobah. Using biblical language, he is the high priest. He has a significant role in scripture. Uh, the high priest was honored out of all the priests in the Old Testament in particular. This high priest had a significant role because the high priest had a particular duty that he alone was allowed to do. That was on the day of atonement. He was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. And be able to bring sacrifice for his sin and also the sin of the people. And so for the Sanhedrin and particularly the high priests, there were people who would come out of the Levitical sort of family, the family of the Levites. But by the time of Jesus, it becomes quite political. There's different families trying to get do a bit of a power play. And this is what's going on. It's just a political thing at the moment. And in the moment, what Caiaphas is doing is he says something, and in the, the language that he's using is to say, hey guys, come on, let's have a think about this. What's going to be better for us? What's going to be better for our situation? What would be the better outcome? That the whole nation of Israel, i.e. us, suffer? Or is it just better for one person to die? Let someone else take it. What's better for us? What works out best for us? How do we keep our power? See, for Caiaphas, and you'll see this in this passage, he, in a sense, has no idea what he's just saying. To him, it makes common sense. It's a political play. But what he doesn't realize is what he's echoing is actually God's plan. This is what God is doing. This is what God is involved in. See, for Caiaphas, he would not even understand that Jesus would die, not just for Israel as a nation, but for the people of God. He doesn't understand that Jesus' death not only saves him from destruction, and he thinks of sort of a physical destruction, but what the scriptures reveal is Jesus' death is to save people from eternal destruction. So he couldn't have even imagined what he's saying. 
He couldn't even imagine what he's saying right now, even what he was being told and revealed by God, this prophecy that was shown to him. He has no idea. And this is why the author, John, if you saw that in the gospel in verses 51 and 52, he's saying that God is involved in this. That God is revealing this prophetic word to Caiaphas, that Jesus would die. Even though Caiaphas' understanding is limited, what we're seeing for us is John connecting the dots. Also for the first people who received the Gospel of John and for you and I. In this moment, the language that even the way that Caiaphas says it, a better way to say it, he's saying that Jesus would die in place of. In other words, that Jesus would be the substitute. That's what he's saying in this moment. That Jesus himself would not only die for the Jewish nation. And then as you read the verses, see that language that's saying, gathering a scattered people of God. It's this picture, if you can imagine, a fisherman throwing their net and gathering a people. And that's the language that's been shown here. For Caiaphas, he thinks that Jesus' death will win politically for them. But he doesn't understand Jesus' substitute death is also good for them. For the nation of Israel, for the world, for us. Because this has been God's plan to send his son. Jesus would become the atoning sacrifice. Jesus would become the lamb. We saw in John 3.16, one of the world's famous verses, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The language there is a substitute language. It's the idea that Jesus would die in our place. This is why so important to understand and grapple with Jesus is our substitute. I mean, this language of Jesus being substituted is the way that God has actually displayed it in all of Scripture. You go through all of the sort of sacrifices that are set up in Leviticus, for example, which I'm sure you guys do read often, right? Particularly chapters 1 to 7. You see these pictures of burnt offerings and animals being sacrificed and peace offerings and, and this idea of guilt offerings and all these things. But the idea is there's a sacrificial system that God puts in place but to approach a holy God, to appease for the sin that was committed, blood has to be spilled. You have to bring something that's worthy, a substitute to take your place. Because all of these things that God put in place was a point to a big reality. That sin is ugly. Sin brings death. Sin makes us unclean. And there needs to be shedding of blood to make it right. You know, one of the things, if you pick it up in Gospel of John, if you haven't already, there's this constant language of the Passover festival. And you see that in verse 55. They're waiting for Jesus as the Passover festival is coming, as people are going to the temple to, be, to be, prepare themselves to be clean. But they don't realize the Passover lamb has arrived. 
Do you remember in the Gospel of John? How is Jesus introduced by John the Baptist in John 1.29? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is God providing his substitute. And later on, as you continue in the Gospel of John, chapter 12 onwards, this is where it sits. It sits in the Passover festival. It's a reminder that God provides again. And you do other things like the Day of Atonement. God is the one who provides. You've got these tangible pictures given by God to display that he will provide a substitute. He needs to provide a substitute because sin demands it. Because God is a holy God. And there's blood that needs to be shed for the forgiveness of sin. And this idea of thing that he set up was to provide for us a picture that we need a greater substitute. Only found in Jesus Christ. And all throughout the Old Testament, what we're seeing is pictures of God's grace. I will provide for you. I will provide for you. And he does. In Jesus Christ. Caiaphas has no clue. What is he saying? But it's God's plan. That God would reveal his ultimate substitute in Jesus Christ. This was God's plan. This is God's plan. And the idea that he would gather people as they respond to this beautiful picture and this truth of God's provision, that God in his grace and mercy would send his only son to become our ultimate substitute. A few years ago, I had the great privilege to go to the States, and I was in Orlando, Florida, and I met a guy, uh, because it's been recorded, I'll change his name. His name is Joe. Uh, Joe was in uh, New York on September 11th. He was a firefighter, uh, and he um, was all geared up to go to work on September 11th. On September 10th, he uh, rang up his boss and said, hey, do you mind if I uh, change my shift? Uh, And his boss said, sure, if you can find someone to replace you, go for it. So he did. He found someone. Uh, Joe uh, was, uh, did an interview recently and he was sharing and Joe's a follower of Jesus and he lives in Orlando now and Joe was saying every day I'm reminded by this guy who went on September 11th he took my place he went to the towers and died in the towers this guy took my place this guy took my place he said, I can't say to you, what I'm constantly reminded of is Jesus has done that. He has done that. He took my place. Friends, Jesus took our place. He became our substitute. Friends, I don't know about you, if you've grown up in the Christian faith for a while, it's one of those doctrines that can be something like, yeah, I've heard that before. Yeah, I know. But I want to ask you, does that still wow you? in your heart and soul that Jesus was willing to do that? There's been exploring in the Gospel of John Jesus, the Word who became flesh Jesus, the light of the world who shines light in the darkness this Jesus who can heal and forgive this Jesus whose very I Am statements declares that He is God 
was willing to become the Lamb of God who took away your sin and mine as he took our place and became that sacrifice on that cross. Only Jesus' blood is able to do this. It's because of his work, not what your work or my work, but his, that you and I can have eternal life. And when we give our lives to him, we become adopted, his children. Christian friend, if you've grown up in the church, does that still make your heart sing? Does that still capture your imagination? Or has your faith just become a religious thing? Seeking friend, if you're exploring the Christian faith, I've got news for you. Being good will not make you right with the Holy God. Being good will not make you right with the Holy God. You are need to explore the claims of Jesus because only Jesus makes you right with the Holy God. This is why we would invite you to behold the Lamb of God. We would invite you to ask those questions that you have, as Cam said earlier, whether if you're really religious or irreligious, you're in desperate need of a Savior. We would invite you to explore that with us. So let me ask you a question. How does Jesus being our substitute impact us today? Well, here are some things to consider. Mums and dads, are we raising just really good moral kids? Are we raising kids that desperately need to realize they need a savior? And there is one who substituted himself for them. Friends, as you head into the work this week, as you go to work at school or uni, wherever God has placed you to be his salt and light, I don't know if you realize this, that most of your friends who don't know Jesus think that you're a really good person. They don't really know. The idea of Jesus being our substitute is a wonderful reminder we're not that good. And you know, that's a great starting point to talk with your friends who don't know Jesus. For those of us who've been following Jesus for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, how many of years... Have we slipped into a motion of thinking that faith is just now one of our religious things? Maybe faith has just become comfortable to you? Friends, let me remind you that God killed his only son on that cross. But this son was willing to die because he knew what his sacrifice would do. And you and I need to constantly remind ourselves of that. This is why we sing songs about Jesus. This is why we have communion. This is why we have baptisms. A reminder of what Jesus has done as our substitute. This is why at Canterbury Gardens, we constantly say, if you haven't already heard this, before you proclaim the good news of Jesus to others, make sure the good news is still good news to you. Because in that is when we can marinate in this and his good truth of his substitute will steep into our souls. As we close, if you have a Bible, could you turn to Revelation 5 with me? And you can either listen, either you can listen or you can read. I want you to know this idea of Jesus being our substitute, the Lamb of God. 
is something that we will still see and sing about in eternity. This is God's word. Then I saw in the right hand of him, and this is John, the same author who wrote the Gospel of John, is now in exile in Patmos for his faith. And he prays to Jesus, and he sees this vision of Jesus. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth will be able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Look how Jesus is described. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing there as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sending out all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you've ransomed people for God. Every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom and priests to you are God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands and saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb! who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth and in the earth, and them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Friends, this is Jesus, our risen King, our substitute, Lamb who has conquered sin and death. This truth is still good news today, in 2019. This is still good news to you. You and I have been given a task. And I don't know about you, I yearn for that day. Myriads, numbers. Do you know why the chaplains are there? Can you imagine the kids on that day that they've shared with, prayed with? We've all been given this task. Let me pray. As the music team comes up, Jesus, we fall at your feet. You are our lamb who was sacrificed. You were the willing substitute. May we be a church that never tires of that. For those of us who have gone a little bit lukewarm in our faith, wake us up again. For those of us who are wanting to be your salt and light, empower us through your spirit by this truth. 
for those of us who are exploring, questioning, apathetic, confront us with you, Jesus, our Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. In your name we pray. Amen.